Well, this year, the longtime legendary quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, didn't want to be a Green Bay Packer anymore, so he signed with the New York Jets and began the season playing for the New York Jets. And so, you know, human nature is human nature. There's a bar in Wisconsin that was saying every time the Jets lose, wanting, in other words, Aaron Rodgers to lose every game, every time the Jets lose, all the drinks on people's tabs will be free that night. So last Monday was the first game for the Jets, the New York Jets, and it turns out that the first drive of the game, Aaron Rodgers went down with a season-ending, probably career-ending injury. And so everybody, because the promotion was advertised and the promotion was widely known, uh, everybody started flocking to that bar, almost assuredly knowing the Jets were going to lose. So 350 people go there, and they, have, they open up tabs, start drinking, uh, adding to their tab, and then, of course, the Jets win in overtime the last seconds of the game, and everybody's kind of stuck with their tab, uh, $160, some of them, because you can only put your drinks on your tab, but $160, all of a sudden, they have to pay for it. They bet uh, against the Jets, and they lost. And, you know, Acts chapter 5 tells us that in spite of what seems like the trend, in spite of what seems like the inertia of people leaving the church, the decline of the American church, the visible news of hypocrisy, self-righteousness, all the undesirable things about churches in the American church, don't bet against Jesus' church, at least for your own life. So Acts is really written, I've said before, by Luke. He's writing a very sophisticated Greek story in the Greek language, And so he introduces characters in the beginning that are going to be prominent later, and he introduces them in creative ways. And every chapter builds on the next. You kind of have to know the previous episode, so to speak. If you could do previously in Acts kind of recap scenes, it would be helpful before you start reading the next chapter because you're not really going to understand chapter 5 without understanding how chapter 4 ends. So let's just real quick look at how chapter 4 ends. Luke says this, With great power, a lot of times that word power in the New Testament means miraculous powers. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So here's what we have to understand, and this is repeated over and over in the book of Acts, that the central message of the apostles was the resurrection of Jesus and what that means, what the implications of that are. That was constantly their message. And so it says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. It goes on. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. That's a a euphemism for the apostles could do what they want with it. They let the apostles be the authority of how that was handled. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So then it finishes with the story of introducing Barnabas. He becomes a figure later. Barnabas is a guy who sells a lot of, he sells his property and brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to anyone who had need and says that he was really well-liked, well-respected in this Jerusalem church. And so chapter 5 begins with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they're part of the Jerusalem church, and they kind of notice that, hey, If you really want to be praised, uh, respected, 
and all that kind of stuff from people, then this kind of thing is really well received. And so they sell some property and they bring the proceeds of the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, except it's not the entire, they're acting like they're bringing all the money, but they're not. Now they're doing a really good thing. They're bringing money to be distributed anyone who has need, but it's what's going on inside them. There's a kind of performative righteousness, a kind of outward righteousness with an inward hypocrisy. Now, they didn't have to give any of it. The text makes really clear they didn't have to give any of it. That wasn't the issue that they didn't give enough. The issue was their performative outward hypocrisy, their self-righteous hypocrisy. So somehow Peter is aware of this, and he tests them with questions, and they both lie to Peter, and they drop dead right there at the apostles' feet. It's one of those stories that you read that kind of smells like the Old Testament. It smells like that's not a fun New Testament story. Here they are doing a good thing, but not entirely with the right motives and with a lot of bad motives, a lot of people's approval and appraisal motives, and they drop dead. And then the next sentence in verse 11 says this, that great fear, now not the kind of fear that makes you want to run away from God, but the kind of fear that you realize you can't run away from God. The kind of fear that you realize, gosh, if God knows what's inside, then there's no way to run away. Great fear, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. Now, you might not understand how these two sentences go together. You might say, well, wait, wait, what? But they do. This is the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word church. Something negative, something positive, what image comes to mind, maybe a building, maybe a worship service, a church service, you remember. I don't know what comes to your mind, but in the New Testament, whenever the New Testament uses the word church, it's never talking about a building. It's not even really talking about a worship service ever. Like Keith said weeks ago, that whenever the church is mentioned in the New Testament, it's always talking about a select community of followers of Jesus. Now, it's okay if you want to call the building a church, and if you want to say, I'm going to church at 8.30 or 11 o'clock, that's fine. It's not wrong. That's just never what the Bible's meaning when it talks about the word church. It's always talking about this gathered community of people. It's people who are followers of Christ. It's community. And so the church in Jerusalem is exploding in growth for two reasons. One that he mentions at the end of chapter 4, and that is that the apostles are constantly giving their eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection, and it is convincing thousands of people. Secondly, they're doing these miracles. Now, it wasn't the Christians going around doing miracles. It was the apostles performing these many signs and wonders that was causing the church in Jerusalem to explode in growth. And Peter said a few chapters earlier in chapter 3 that what these miracles were all about was that they were visible signs of what the resurrection of Jesus is all about. They're visible signs of the resurrection that all of his followers are going to have, a new creation where the restoration of all things on earth and the restoration of everything that it means to be human happen when Jesus brings his kingdom back to earth. 
And these miracles are showing Jesus has the power to do it, and this is what the gospel is all about. But in these earliest days of the church, it's like the earliest days of the Old Testament, where all the scary stories happened. In these earliest days of the church, it's like when God was establishing those first decades, those, those first 40 or 50 years or so, when God's establishing the nation of Israel. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. He's setting up laws, and he's setting up a nation of Israel. And he's enabling Moses to do extraordinary miracles because he's putting his signature on Moses' teaching, and he's putting his signature on Moses' leadership, and he's putting his signature on Israel as the covenant people of God's promised kingdom. So he's doing extraordinary miracles to show what ultimately the promise of the kingdom is for his covenant people. But at the same time, there are miraculous deaths. I don't know how you want to put it. There are extraordinary, not just miracles, there are extraordinary physical deaths that happen to demonstrate what God hates and what's not going to be a part of his kingdom. So sometimes the earth swallows people up. Sometimes there are plagues. It's all the stories when we think about you know, Old Testament judgment of God. With all the extraordinary miracles, there were these extraordinary examples of also what's not going to be in the kingdom. And, and, and people were those examples. Their extraordinary miraculous death was an example. And so the same thing is happening now with these first decades of the church. God is establishing a new covenant people. He's putting his signature by enabling the apostles who are going to write the New Testament. He's putting his signature on their teaching by enabling them to do miraculous, extraordinary miracles. At the same time, with the extraordinary miracles, because the miracles are happening, he kind of ramps up both signs, not just the signs of what the kingdom is about in the restoration sense, but the signs of what the kingdom is about and what's not going to be their sense. And so he picks two examples, Ananias and Sapphira, that become examples of, yeah, this is not going to be the kingdom of God. It's not going to be this performative, outward, hypocritical self-righteousness. I hate that. So he kills him right there on the spot. Now, God doesn't do that anymore. But there's still, just like the story of Ananias and Sapphira, there is, it always has been true, there is this self-righteous hypocrisy present in every church ever since this very first church, ever since we see here in chapter 5. Just like every single human community ever in the history of humanity, there is hypocritical, self-righteous, outward performance, inner, inward, not so great, self-righteous hypocrisy in every church. But people aren't dropping dead because of it. They were just examples because of the extraordinary miracles being also an example at the hands of the apostles. If God still did drop people dead because of their outward self-righteous hypocrisy, churches would be really small today. <laughs> and you might wonder, you might struggle with, why does Jesus allow, why does he use churches and allows for, at the same time, this self-righteous hypocrisy in those churches? Why does Jesus seem to use churches to bring redemptive healing in people's lives and that same church has such disappointing, frustrating, outward performance righteousness and inner hypocrisy? Why does he allow that? And maybe instead you ought to be thankful that he does. Because every time you become a member of a church, every church you join, you increase the number of its hypocrites by one. 
We all, we all do. We all do. But what, if you want to be a church now that's like the church in the New Testament, like the church we see in Acts chapter 5, what that means is it's going to be this redemptive healing community where Jesus changes people's lives that also has this human messiness and self-righteous hypocrisy. You can't really have one without the other. That's the description we're seeing of the early church, and it really is, right? It's a description of every church. There's one more description at the end of verse 12. It says, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade is this part of, this is a model that archaeologists have developed in Jerusalem. It's a model of what the temple would look like, this big courtyard in the temple. And it was Solomon's colonnade, this courtyard. These pillars are kind of like the pillars at Mizzou, you know, the columns. And they have these over, these these pavilions over them, like this especially right here, probably Solomon's colonnade. Solomon didn't build it, it was just called that. And that's where Luke is telling us the church would meet. That's where the followers of Jesus would gather. And the reason why they met here is because this is the only place that would fit. We're told this church was over 5,000 people. Well, they had to, they had to find a place big enough, and this, this is where they had, they met together. This is where they gathered. And it shows you this, that this idea of a mega church, mega just means thousand, this idea of a multiple thousand person church is not some new American thing, but goes all the way back to the very first church. And Jesus uses large churches and Jesus uses small churches, not, one's not better than the other. It's just, it's just what Jesus decides to do. It depends on what Jesus wants to do through that church. But this church, like every large church, had an, incredible, had an incredible visibility in Jerusalem because they were really large compared to the rest of the population of Jerusalem. Everybody probably knew somebody who was a part of it, and they had a reputation. So it says in verse 13, Luke says, no one. So you have the church gathering in the temple courts, Solomon's colonnade, these columns, these pillars. But, but no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. There was something about it, the, the social capital that it would cost you if you were seen being a part of this gathering of Christians, if you were seen being a part of this church, it probably cost you socially, so you didn't dare join them. And of course, you heard two people died, so you, you know, it's kind of scary. You don't want to join them. But they had a good reputation. You also kind of, you know, but they do do good things. I'm, I'm, I'm glad they're here. But I, I just am not sure I want to be associated with them. But then it says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. And so they were added. The Lord's doing the adding. That's a passive verb. They're, they're added to their number. When they believed in the Lord, they were added to the church. And what it shows you there is, is to, you, you can't really separate believing in Jesus and being in his church. To believe in Jesus was the same thing as the, to believe in the church. And so a lot of Christians, they see the decline of the American church. They see the outward hypocrisy. It's real. And when I see hypocrisy and self-righteousness in churches, and we see a lot of it in social media, I don't, I don't even want to be a Christian sometimes when I see it. I don't want to be associated with a church. I, I don't dare become part of those people. There's kind of that in me. And yet, and there might be that in you. You know, you don't want to be a part. You don't want to be associated with that. You want to kind of follow Jesus without having to be associated with the church. 
But trying, in spite of the self-righteous hypocrisy, trying to be a follower of Jesus without being a part of his church is like trying to separate the blood from the body. Someone once said this, that, that sometimes the church gets in the way of Jesus. Sometimes the church gets in the way of Jesus. But it's really the only way also to Jesus. Sometimes it gets in the way of Jesus, but it really is the only way to Jesus. So you kind of see that here. There's reasons why people don't want to be a part of it, but if they believe in Jesus, they're added to their number. That's what Keith talked about a few weeks ago, because we saw this repeated twice in chapter 2. Same language, chapter 2, verse 41 says, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000, so it's about half the people that are involved in the church in chapter 5, about 3,000 were added to their number. Same language that day. So when they accepted the message, they were added to their number. And then verse 47 says, and the Lord, is Jesus adding them, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. To believe was to be added to their number. There, there wouldn't be any kind of concept of believing in Jesus and not being added to their number. Now, the being saved there is not believing in Jesus so that you can die when you go to heaven. That's not what it means by being saved. It never means that. That word means to be restored, to be healed. It's what Peter talked about, the restoration of all things, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, but ultimately the restoration of all things because Jesus rose from the dead when the kingdom of God comes back. It is going to a place called heaven, but heaven's coming back to earth when Jesus returns. So it's interesting, Luke says being saved in a present tense. We're kind of being saved as we're added to the number. We're going through the process of what the church is. It's this redemptive healing community that's also this human messy and a self-righteous hypocrisy that's always disappointing when we see it. And we don't want to be a part of it. And we don't want to be associated with it. But you can't really have one without the other. And so, you know, in our super hyper-individualized culture, we think we can separate the two. I can separate believing and following Jesus from being part of his church. But never in the Bible do you see that. Not in the Bible. Ever. So, this is one of those areas where what the Bible is showing us and telling us to do is something that's really for our own good. And it's an example where the Bible is so far out ahead of what our culture is just now starting to catch up with. Here, our, the Bible is so far ahead of our culture, but our culture is starting to catch up to seeing the need for community, even if it's got all the flaws of human messiness. Being a part of community is really important for us as, as human beings, not just as Christians, but as humans. More and more people are realizing this. Nick Kristoff, he's an opinion writer for the New York Times, he just writes this month, I mean, just the beginning of September, he wrote this in a column. He says, loneliness crushes the soul. I mean, I just love that language. Loneliness crushes the soul. But researchers are finding it does far more damage than that. It is linked to strokes, heart disease, dementia, inflammation, and suicide. It breaks the heart literally as well as figuratively. Loneliness is as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more lethal than consuming six alcoholic drinks a day, according to the Surgeon General of the United States. 
Loneliness is more dangerous for health than obesity, he says. And alas, we have been growing more lonely. And I don't know about you. I don't know if that grabs you in some way or not. He talks later in the article about how Britain has established an official government position, the Minister of Loneliness. It's a, it's a government position. And he actually talks about what they're doing, and it actually sounds pretty good. I'd like to do some of those things here. Japan and Sweden are following suit. Now they have a Minister of Loneliness. Different titles, but same, same thing. Brene Brown talks about in her book that she's discovered that loneliness is one of the major causes of anxiety in people. Jessica Gross, she's another opinion writer for the New York Times, she wrote earlier this summer, and she got more involved in focusing it on religious communities. She's talking about how people have left religion, have left churches, left their religious communities, and yet she says it's the churches that have what they still long for. She's not a Christian. She's a secular Jew. She writes this in her column back in June, She says, I'm Jewish and still have a strong cultural identity. I'm culturally Jewish, but I'm not observant. I'm not religious. But she she goes on and writes, the one aspect of religion in America that I unquestionably see as an overall positive for society is the ready-made supportive community that churchgoers can access. And she says, community was mentioned in over 2,300 reader emails that she got from people who have left the church. As one reader wrote to me, quote, I desperately miss the community. It was where my friendships came from. I have very few friends now. She goes on, I asked every sociologist I interviewed whether communities created around secular activities outside of houses of worship could give the same level of wraparound support that churches, temples, and mosques are able to offer nearly across the board, the answer was no. Again, I don't know if this grabs you. I don't know if it kind of resonates with you or not. I mean, here you are at church, so it's not like you're staying away from church. You're here. But, you know, I don't know if this grabs you that in spite of the hypocrisy, the church really is the place where Jesus' redemptive power. The church really is the place where healing happens. Those who are being saved are added to their number. This, this inseparable to being involved in his messy, often outwardly, self-righteously hypocritical church. There are not just people leaving the church. There are people coming into the church. I walked out there on Friday and read some of those comments on the comment board out there. And I saw two cards. I saw a bunch of cards, but I picked two, took a picture of two that I thought represented a lot of them that I saw. Here's one that says, since finding my faith and, and, and starting to attend the crossing, I've become much happier and developed so many more deep and healthy relationships. I'm so thankful for the change in my life. I've definitely seen so much growth in myself. God has helped me find my, my path and strengthen my relationships with family and friends, through the community, the relationships at, at the crossing, at church. Here's another one that gets right to the point, more simple. It says, God gave me a wonderful church community and the strength to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I don't know, again, where you are, how, how committed you want to be to finding community among the people, not the building necessarily, the worship service, but the people that are the gathered followers of Jesus, if that resonates with you or not. 
If it does, you know, you, there, that means you've got to come to the places where the church is gathered, not just here, this big group, but the littler places. If, if, you know, if you're a college student, there's Veritas. If you're in your 20s and not in college, there's the Crossing 20s. If, if you're a man, there's, I, I come here early Friday mornings and the parking lot's full of men who are coming and all these different Bible studies that are going on over there in the student center. Maybe, that, maybe you can just kind of check out and see if that is something you can do, meet some people. For women's Bible studies, I mean, every day, different times of day, there are women's studies. You can go online on our website and look at all these things. Or maybe if this is like you're not ready to do that, that just sounds like getting involved in something you're not ready for. Maybe if you just know a few other people already here at the church, you can just ask them if they want to read a book and you get together a couple times and talk about it at coffee or lunch. Just have a lunch three or four times and talk about those segments of the book as you read them. If you want to know a good book to do that with, that QR code in front of you on your seat, if you just hit that QR code, that you're going to have an interactive survey that Keith and Anna Lynn wrote to help you find a book that is going to be kind of hitting you where you're at right now. And you could, you could get together with people and talk about that. I don't know, there's all kinds of ways. It's, it's easy, but it's not. You know how that is. But I don't know what your level of commitment is. I don't know how motivated you are to really want to do that or if you just kind of want to keep doing what you're doing. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe what you're doing is working. For a lot of you, it's not. I saw this video online that kind of reminded me of this. It's a guy that has this really super small bicycle, like the world's tiniest bicycle kind of thing. And it's got, you know, it's a, it's a bicycle that's kind of small, but he could actually ride it. And so it's a video of him putting his feet on the pedals, and there he goes. And then here he goes. <laughs> and you kind of think about the Wizard of Oz. It's working. Now, it's not working awesomely, but it's working for him. And maybe for some of you, your level of commitment to the church, it's kind of like that little, if you, if you could have a bike the size of your level of how much you want to get involved in church, maybe some of your bikes are really small. And you're kind of coming into church like this, and you're kind of doing it, and you're coming into church, and it's working for you. You're making your way, but it's a lot of effort. It's uncomfortable. You're not making a lot of progress, but you're making some. But there's just, other people are kind of coming in here on their battery-powered bikes, and they're just cruising in because they've developed relationships. They've developed friendships. It's easy because when they come to church, they're coming to see their friends. I don't know where you are in all that, but I can tell you this is not going to last a long time for you. It's not going to work forever. It works for a little while, but then you just get tired and you got to stop. But you know what? Every church is going to have this if, that believes in Jesus, that follows Jesus, that believes the Bible is going to be this mixture. It's going to be this place where redemption can happen. I mean, this being saved process of healing happens because Jesus uses his church. But it's also at the same time going to be this human messy, this self-righteous hypocrisy place. And you really can't have the one without the other because that has been a part of the church all the way from the very beginning, just like we see here in Acts chapter 5. But you belong here because Jesus is here.